previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. It's unsettling watching that. And it's unsettling to see so many people hurt and murdered by someone with no justifiable agenda in any situation like that. Set your coordinates and lock in your location because it's time for the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the meeting place to talk sports, pop culture, and everything in between. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Sports Refuge Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Holland. This is the weekly show where I talk with guests about their connection to sports. Being a sportscaster was always Scott Abraham's dream. Reading the Daily Box score in a morning newspaper fascinated Abraham's growing interest in being on the sidelines and capturing every big moment of sports action. Abraham was not only able to parlay that dream into reality, but he has also become one of the best in the business. The sports anchor and reporter for TV station WJLA in Washington, D.C., has garnered several accolades, including two Sports Emmy Awards. In this interview, I speak with Abraham, whose daughter Journey makes a cameo appearance in this episode, about his early beginnings in journalism, his time as a Division I athlete at Syracuse University, and what he looks for in a good story. Abraham will also discuss his journalism role models, the evolution of journalism in the age of social media and intense scrutiny on professional journalists, what it's like being married to a fellow broadcast journalist, and what career path he would have chose if he wasn't in the field of broadcast journalism. Right now, we take you to my interview with Scott Abraham. This week's interview is Scott Abraham of Channel 7 WJLA Sports. How are you today, Scott? Hey, Earl. Great to hear from you and a pleasure to be on your podcast, brother. Thanks for being able to participate. And I'm always looking out to talk to people who have a career in journalism, who have a path in journalism, and just wanting to talk about how they got into this field in addition to sports. And you're the perfect combination. Not only are you a journalist, you are a sports journalist and a sports television journalist. Yeah, really a dream job. And it kind of fostered and festered itself when I was a young boy in high school. And you know, I woke up every morning before school grabbing a newspaper and reading it at the kitchen table, looking at the box scores and looking at what was happening and uh, watching Sports Center in the morning with dad before school. And my dad was a big baseball card collector. So that also got me involved of looking at stats, where the players are from, and just the different nuances of sports. And, you know, I kind of came to the revelation that, you know, why not get paid and talk about sports? So I kind of ventured into broadcasting and I got a um, kind of a shadowing mini internship during my senior year in high school where I shadowed the sports director at my local TV station in Utica, New York, WKTV. And then I ended up going to Syracuse University for college. What led to going to Syracuse? I know they have a really good journalism program, but were there sort of any other options that you had looked at in addition to Syracuse? No, not really. I was kind of hell-bent on Syracuse because of that reputation and the fact that I lived two hours away from my childhood home. So that was kind of the perfect storm in a sense where I was far enough away to live there and be on my own and be independent, but also close enough where I could race home for a home-cooked meal or have mom do laundry or something. So yeah, I always kind of figured I wanted to go to Syracuse because of that program and they would put me in the best situation and the right path of success in the career. Was television journalism really your ultimate goal? Did you look at print journalism? Did you look at some of the other mediums in journalism before deciding on television? I was all in on TV. I never dove into newspaper, never dove into radio, never dove into play-by-play. I wanted to be that guy on Sports Center reading the highlights. 
I know you said you watch SportsCenter a lot. Who were some of your broadcast influences? I was a big uh, Bob Costas guy. I love Bob Costas. He was obviously doing the Olympics at NBC. But I really liked Chris Berman. I loved watching NFL primetime. I loved how his energy and his different catchphrases, uh, he always made me laugh, always made me smile. I really enjoyed Olbermann and uh, Dan Patrick. They were teamed up on SportsCenter. I know you're close to Dan Patrick. He's your boy. So, yeah, those were some of my kind of my role models. And watching all the different sports centers, I feel like there were some underrated sports center anchors or sports casters that really didn't get the accolades like Berman and Patrick and Olbermann. And, you know, Linda Cohn's a very good sports caster. I feel like she doesn't she, do She's still there. I agree. They pushed her kind of into the background, and, you know, she's been there for years. She does a great job. What was your first broadcasting job? Was WBOC your first broadcasting job, professional one out of college? Nope. My first job out of college, graduated in May 2005. My first job was in January 2006 in Lincoln, Nebraska. I was there for two years working at the NBC affiliate. And that's where it all started. On television, I know there's not as many specialized beats as, like, for example, print journalism, where you may be set to a particular team or a particular, I guess, league or division. What was that like starting out, especially as a TV sports reporter, and sort of what the coverage is sort of like? I have so much respect for beat reporters, number one. That is an absolute grind, covering one team, traveling with the team. I don't know if I could do it. I mean, it is not easy just focusing everything on one team. I personally click better doing broad variety of high school, college, pros. I really enjoy kind of learning about everybody, not just focusing on one team. So I think I fit better into the realm of, okay, my first job, I cover Husker football. I cover the high school ranks. I cover the D3 colleges out there. I cover the College World Series in Omaha when I come to town, instead of just focusing squarely on Nebraska football. In your mind, what is easier, covering a Division One powerhouse football school or maybe covering a smaller Division Three school? I think you have more access the smaller you go, so you have more access to high school, more access to all D3, because uh, they want the coverage where big time D1, you're just one of many fishes trying to get a piece of the pie, in a sense. So there's much more competition. You don't get as many exclusives or breaking stories, where if you go to the high schools and the D3 level, uh, you have more chances to get those exclusive stories or breaking news. It feels like in television journalism, it's sort of like radio where sometimes you got to move from town to town and move from job to job. What is that like, making those transitions from one place to another? Maybe, like you said, you went from Nebraska after two years, and then I believe it was Salisbury next for seven or eight? Correct. Yeah, eight, seven and a half years, yep. So I did Lincoln for two years, Salisbury for seven and a half, and uh, here I'm nearing three years in D.C. So moving is not fun. I hate it. But, you know, when the job calls and good opportunities arise, you got to make that leap. And that's the tough part of the business of you want to climb the ladder and, you know, you have to move to get better relations, better pay, better coverage opportunities. So hopefully I don't have to move too many more times. Once you got to Salisbury working at WBOC, what was that transition like, especially starting out there after, like you said, the two years in, in Nebraska? Um, Salisbury Ocean City is much smaller than Nebraska because, you know, we had the D1 University and the Cornhuskers and the University of Nebraska right there. But I really grew 
attached to Delmarva because of the hominess and the community-oriented coverage there. The small towns it helped that WBOC was a platform that most people watched, and WBOC is kind of considered a powerhouse there. So it was really nice to kind of, in a sense, be one of the main voices for local sports in that community. And uh, I just can't say enough good things about my experiences at WBOC and on Delmarva. Of the different coaches and players that you were able to interact with over that time, like you said, it's a different vibe from going to Nebraska to Salisbury. I mean, how did you try to just blend in and interact with those coaches and just sort of try to work with them? Uh, I think it's about building personal relationships. You know, Butch Waller has open gyms on Saturdays and Sundays. I went there and played some open gyms to kind of get my face out there and get to know Butch. I know he was a power player in terms of coaching the area, so I got to know him very well. I got to know Bobby Knopf, the syndicator. You go to lunch with some of these coaches and, and just kind of develop these personal relationships of building trust and bouncing kind of stories and ideas off each other. And I think that's important. That'll make your life easier as a journalist to build those relationships because they, in turn, will trust you and feed you information. During the time in Salisbury, you got to see a lot of, especially prep athletes, in addition to college athletes who were playing at the Division Three and Division One level at Salisbury University and the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, respectively. But was there a particular athlete that stuck out to you, especially in the high school ranks, that you'd think, this person has it all, this person has the ability, they have the attitude, they have the right family background, that this person can go far? Uh, that I covered in the high school ranks? Yeah. Um, there was two that really stood out. A young man, Indian River quarterback, his name was Jamie Jarman. He was a human highlight reel. Man, he had all the tools. He was a three-sport athlete, football, basketball, and baseball. He got drafted, I believe, in the first or second round by the Texas Rangers. I thought he was a better football player leading Indian River, I believe, to the state championship they won that year. He was a special athlete. I think he's actually still at the University of Delaware right now playing football. I think he's a senior. Then the other one was James M. Bennett, basketball player Corey Holden. He really evolved his last couple of years, and I could see him taking that major leap forward, and he was the premier player of the Bayside Conference, and he really got better as he got older. He put the work in. He built his body, made himself stronger, and uh, ended up having a couple of really good years at the University of Delaware. Transferred to South Carolina, was actually part of that South Carolina Final Four team. He couldn't play because that was the year he had to sit out to transfer, and uh, unfortunately it didn't work out down there in Columbia. And I don't know exactly where he is right now, but he was a special athlete as well. Going back to talking about your background in sports, did you play sports athletically in high school? Did you play it on the team, or did you play recreational stuff? Did you play a lot of that? Yeah, in high school, I did cross-country basketball and track all four years, and then I ran track at Syracuse University. Uh, what were your specialties in track? So I was an 800 meter, and I was a miler. So I was a middle distance slash long distance. What was the preparation like normally for track meets, especially the day of an event like that? D1 athletics is no joke. So I was putting in, I'd say, 60 miles a week and training and morning workout. So for college, you know, you woke up at 6, you lifted till 8, you went to class, and then you had practice from 2 until 6 o'clock. It's, it's pretty intense. I lasted only one year, and then I kind of focused on my broadcasting and getting internships. But it was good. It was a good experience of, you know, I remember being in the weight room and kind of lifting with, you know, Dwight Freeney, who was a senior on the football team at the time at Syracuse. You know, the famous defensive end who uh, will 
most certainly be in the Hall of Fame. I think he retired this past year. Do you still run recreationally, leisurely now? And it was hard with a night job. Actually, yeah, I don't really run as much anymore. I actually picked up tennis. I became a, an avid tennis player. I play about four to five times a week. I love it. Up in Salisbury at the Salisbury City Park, a group of guys played every morning from 10 a.m. until noon. It was kind of a drop-in, and that's how I got hooked. And now I'm in a couple of leagues over here, and uh, that's kind of like my sport now. What's your best tennis skill, forehand, backhand? Uh, well, I think I can say it's my backhand. My forehand is a little inconsistent, but uh, I'm pretty good with a backhand. And being a right-hander, you would think my forehand is in my strong suit, which kind of confuses my opponents because usually they attack somebody's backhand if they're a right-handed player but my backhand is generally my weapon moving back to journalism and your work what is the average day like for you coming in what's the process like when do you normally get in usually um i'm a night owl so i work uh, 2 p.m until midnight so i am not a morning person i usually sleep in until about 9 9 30 and then i kind of wake up and figure out what's going on what's cooking what are some of the stories what are people talking about and usually on wednesdays and thursdays i go out and do a feature story human interest story kind of an athlete that maybe is overcoming adversity, not necessarily the X's and O's, focused on somebody that maybe tours ACL and is working his way back or somebody that, you know, lost a loved one and has kind of gravitated to sports to go through the healing process and almost a therapy in a sense. So I like to find those stories that have those emotional connections in the prep ranks and the college ranks and the pro ranks. So usually Wednesday, Thursdays, I do kind of human interest stories. Friday, Saturdays, I'm on the desk anchoring. The, you know, the sports cast, and then Sunday is usually kind of a coin flip of go to the Redskins game, go to the Ravens game, go to a DC United game, kind of go to a game that's going on. So I have a really good balance of reporting and anchoring. Of the feature stories that you've done, when it comes to putting together a good feature story, what is the key? I think emotion. Find that emotional element. Find that layer, that extra layer that makes a good story a great story. As a journalist, you aspire to tell stories that resonate with people, that really strike a chord. And that's what my goal is, telling these stories. You know, I don't want to say Earl Holland scored six touchdowns last week. Yeah, that's a good story. Give me some emotional. Give me, give me the story, the player that scored six touchdowns and maybe his mother or father passed last month or something and he's motivated and playing for them and honoring them that's the type of story i want to tell it makes me think of like a feature i remember the time i was interning uh with george michael and, and channel four one of your uh, tv rivals and he did a feature feature for the sports machine about roger clemens so it was about 2004 roger clemens and he was talking about his mom who raised him after his dad died and he just <clears throat> wanted to be able to when he went to cooperstown to have his mother sitting there and now looking back at that unfortunately his mother has passed and it might be a while until he gets into cooperstown but that was a story that it was something that really when you look back at it really touched your heart and it's like man you're looking forward to that point that also he also talked about that sort of led to a reason why he was sort of holding on and still playing and it makes it even sadder now yep yep those are the stories you remember it you're an intern and you remember it oh yeah when it's a good story it'll stick with you forever that's right and i've had my share of stories working news working all different types of beats and there's been plenty of those that just sort of stick in your crawl did you do a lot of news in addition to sports or are you just always straight sports generally i've done 
majority sports here in, in D.C. Dave had me anchor quite a bit of news, so I fill in a lot on the morning show. So whenever the male anchor is off on the morning show, they usually ask me to fill in, which is good variety, good versatility, a good change of pace. I don't like getting up at 2 in the morning like my wife does every day. I don't know how she does it, but I do, and it's good to kind of put on your resume. You and your wife, Lacey, have been in journalism. You guys met at WBOC. What is that like? She's working news, you're working sports, and working different shifts. What is that like, just trying to sort of make things work? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're kind of ships passing in the night. She usually works 2 a.m. till 11 a.m., and I work uh, 2 p.m. till midnight, so we basically have lunches together. And in Salisbury, we both were Monday through Friday and we had our weekends off. But here, she's Monday through Friday and I'm Wednesday through Sunday. So we don't have any days off together. So that's kind of tough and frustrating, but it's part of the business. And, you know, it's, it's great to have somebody in the business that gets it, that you can vent to, that knows exactly what's going on and kind of the verbiage of uh, TV. So we bounce ideas off each other, vent to each other, and at the end of the day, give each other hugs. I used to have a coworker who worked in a newspaper, and he talked about how sometimes people who are not in journalism don't understand the rigors of the schedule and all different types of things, and just would call them like newsroom widows because sometimes you end up sacrificing your relationship at the expense of, of your career and this uh, unique schedule that you have, and sometimes some people can adapt to it and others can't. Yep, it's tough, especially when we add a wrinkle of a child in now. She just had her first child in October, approaching a year. So it's been a life adjustment and balancing career, love, having date nights, and then obviously caring for our daughter and making sure she's having a good life. How has fatherhood changed you? Do you feel like it's normally a cliche where you say, oh, yes, fatherhood changes you a lot? Or is that really true? It's been a blessing. It's I tell everybody it's the... Hardest job you'll ever have, but the most rewarding job you'll ever have. You don't really sweat the small things anymore. You don't worry about what's going on at work or stupid little things. It's all focused on your child and making sure she's okay, she's smiling, life is good for her. It's not about me. It's not about my wife and I, it's not about us anymore. It's about our daughter and just making sure all is good in her little world. Ultimate goal, how many kids do you want to end up having? No more than two, I tell you that. It's uh, <laughs> it's not easy. So maybe in a couple of years we'll try for a little brother, but right now we have our hands full of just one and balancing two power careers. Were you from a big family? Yeah, I was the baby of four. And I don't know how people have four kids anymore. I mean, it's it's totally different day and age where when our parents were growing up, you know, you didn't necessarily have to have both parents working. One parent could work and the other parent could take care of the kids and stay home. Here, it's so hard. Both parents have to work. You have to put food on the table. You know, the cost of living is so much more expensive. You don't see families having three, four kids anymore. It's, it's rare. I mean, you usually see people have max two kids these days just because, number one, they're expensive. Number two, time. Number three, you just don't have the resources. I can see that. I am the third of four kids. And yeah, it was such a different time back in the 80s. Yep. And like my brother, he was the youngest of four, and he's about to have his fourth kid. And they're both working. His wife is working, and he's working as well. And, you know, sometimes he has to take on more shifts just to sort of help with that. Yep. 
every every little bit helps, and you take on those extra shifts, those, those overtime opportunities, so you can uh, provide for your family. Just bouncing back around, I know you talked about journalism, watching Sports Center early in the morning. Getting into journalism, what was the biggest draw? I know some people talk about they like telling people stories. Other people feel like the light needs to be shined on the truth. What to you in particular is the biggest draw in journalism? When I was a kid, the biggest draw was going to these big sporting events, being on the sidelines of these football games or baseball games and being the guy on the sidelines talking about the game. That's my dream was and just being at these big events. And I lived that April through June when I covered the Caps in the Stanley Cup final. That was professionally the biggest moment of my career, seeing those guys celebrate with the Cup holding the cup, being part of the championship parade. It was everything I ever dreamed about, Earl. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You've had a pretty interesting stretch. Not only did you cover the Caps, you were covering the WNBA, especially with the Mystics. Yeah, that's probably one of the best three-month personal stretches I think anyone could ever have, aside from, you know, being a professional athlete. Yeah, it was remarkable. You know, I went to Pittsburgh, went to Tampa, went to Vegas covering the boys, getting close with them, and seeing them get rewarded with the ultimate prize. And that's an image and memory I'll have forever. And then covering the Major League Baseball All-Star Game in D.C. and WNBA Finals last night and cover Tiger Woods Golf Tournament and uh, the Big City Open Tennis Tournament. It, it never ends in D.C. It's a great sports town, and I've been very lucky to experience and interview some amazing athletes. I know you mentioned Tiger Woods and his tournament. When it comes to some of the most down-to-earth athletes that you've been able to cover, who would top that list? Down to Tiger Woods has always been great, always been very acceptable in, in answering questions. I love the hockey players. The Caps have always been very good. Ovi's great. All the boys are great in the locker room, always willing to talk. I find, you know, the basketball players, John Wall and, and Beal, they're always willing to talk. The baseball players are kind of the most difficult. Don't know why for some reason. They're kind of picky when they want to talk and whatnot. So that's kind of frustrating sometimes dealing with the baseball players. And the Redskins have generally been all, all been good. Um, you know, I've had a chance to interview like a Simone Biles, Katie Ledecky, some big time athletes. And it's been tremendous. Who is the athlete that you most want to sit down and get an interview with? Man, that's a good question. I talk, I mean, I talked to LeBron. I talked to Steph. But, you know, I'd love to talk with, like, a Tom Brady. He always fascinates me and his kind of workout regimen and the controversy surrounding him and his trainer, Guerrero, and just how he continually is so good. And he's getting old, and he's just – he doesn't look like he's slowing down. He always fascinates me, and just his story of being, a, what, a fifth or sixth-round draft pick and – He's arguably the greatest football player to ever play. And uh, he'd be someone I'd love to sit and talk with for 15 minutes in a sit-down interview. Jumping to different accolades, how many sports Emmys have you won, and what is that process like of applying and competing for one? I am two for two. I won one last year, and I won one this year. So I have two Emmys in my trophy case. The Emmys are divided into regional chapters, so... I'm in the Capital Emmys chapter, which consists of the following markets. Salisbury, Hagerstown, Baltimore, D.C., Richmond, Norfolk, Harrisonburg, Roanoke, 
in Charlottesville. So those are the people I'm competing against in terms of sports Emmys. And they have different categories, feature stories, sports cast, sports anchor, on-air personality. And you submit, and they get judged by a panel, and you find out if you win in an award ceremony. What would you say, as a journalist, is maybe the biggest misconception is about journalism in general and a big misconception people may have about you? I think people think we make a lot of money. I think they think because you're on TV, you're under the bright lights, that you make a lot of money. Tell you what, my first job in Lincoln, Nebraska, I made $18,500 my first job. Wow. $18,500 my first job in January 2006. It is a glorious job. You're under the spotlight. You're on TV. But there is so much work that goes on behind the scenes so you can do that sports cast from writing the stories, from editing the video, from getting the sound bites, from putting a show together, from timing out the show, making sure you hit your exact time. You just can't go five minutes. You have to go the specific time is what the producer allots you. I think people have this preconceived notion. You just go up on the set, Earl, and you just read off the teleprompter. You just read, and that's not the case. There's so much work that goes on behind the scenes that leads you to that moment of delivering the sportscast and delivering the news. You just don't go up there and read. Even during my internship, I noticed it was definitely not that easy the way it's glorified on TV or something like that. It's never that easy. There's a lot of work that goes into that. Misconceptions maybe about you. I mean, in this business, not everybody is going to like you. And that's okay. You have to learn to have tough skin. You know, social media these days, keyboard heroes, you know, they love the troll. And that's okay. That's kind of the fun part. You have to get used to it. And some people don't like me. Some people love me. Some people love you, Earl. Some people don't like you. That's, that's the way the world works. And that's okay. And you have to have tough skin and, and just roll with the punches. Do you guys still use Q scores when it comes to television? Or is that sort of an outdated thing? No, no we don't do that. We just do the Nielsen ratings of the station as a whole. Okay. I was thinking like the movie Up Close and Personal with Michelle okay. Pfeiffer where they just talked about the Q scores and they yes. would just keep changing her look to grow her popularity among viewers and the focus groups and things like that. That's why I was just thinking, did they do stuff like that anymore? I think sometimes they have focus groups of what you like and don't like about the newscast and maybe some on-air personalities, but it's not like, you know, the movie Up Close and Personal. Not anymore. Do you have any particular favorite journalism movies or even sports movies? Oh, I got a couple of them. I love Rudy. That was a great one. I love, you know, the Major League series, good old Vaughn, and those movies were great. Miracle, story of the 1980 Olympic hockey team was great. You know what I really love, Earl? I love watching these 30 for 30s and these E60s, kind of the stories and the documentaries of these amazing moments, like the story of the University of Miami football program or the story of Randy Moss. I really enjoy those 30 for 30s, and I think you do too as well. Yeah, Pony Excess was one of my favorite ones, and I know that especially you think Heisman Night, that's the night where not only would you see the new Heisman Award winner, that's when you get a new 30 for 30, so it was so weird yes. last year when they didn't have one. We were just looking forward to it. I remember the Marinovich Project, I remember the U, 
Pony XS. I yes. believe Run Ricky Run was one of those as well. And yeah, it's one of those things where you expect it now every year after the Heisman ceremony. You stay tuned for the 30 for 30. Sometimes that's the only reason I watch the Heisman, just to make sure I'm not late on the 30 for 30. Yep, they're great, and I'm just so drawn to them, and I get excited when, you know, they did one on the XFL. That was a great one on how the WWF started a football league, and then it failed, and you learn their educational experiences. There's things you don't realize about the stories. And I feel like that's one thing that ESPN does well, especially going to their journalistic roots. I feel like everything gets lost in the bluster of the embrace debate theory and the whole process there. But they really have a lot of good journalism. They can really tell stories. You always think of like maybe Tom Rinaldi and his features. They already start with the piano playing and his voice, and it just takes you into a whole different story there. That guy, Tom Rinaldi, is someone I aspire to be. When it comes to storytelling, I love Tom Rinaldi. And I was reading this book about ESPN, especially from the beginnings. Uh, one of the things they tried to do, especially when they hired John Walsh as, I believe, the president or the vice president there, they brought in a lot of newspaper journalists at the time to bring that integrity to it, in addition to the, the broadcasts and, and things like that. And I feel like, for example, when they canceled Sports Reporters, which was like a Sunday morning staple to me, in addition to Outside the Line. Yeah. I felt like they were losing a little bit of what made them special when it comes to journalism, but I feel like them reinforcing it with E60 and doing a lot more features like that, I feel like at least what was a pause and call for concern was a little bit alleviated. Yep, well said. Yeah, I agree. If you were not a journalist, what would you have done? I think I would be a teacher. I really enjoy, like, for example, when I have interns, I really enjoy kind of training them and educating them about the business. And they're like a piece of clay, and I have to mold them. And that's one of my most rewarding parts of this job is seeing them go on into the business and succeed. And they're my legacy in a sense. And my father was a teacher for 35 years, so I could totally see myself you know, becoming a college professor or teaching a few journalism classes down the road. What other, I guess, careers prior to becoming an anchor and becoming a reporter did you have prior to getting into journalism? Did you know that journalism was going to be the 100% goal all the way? Honestly, Earl, I went all in on being a television sports broadcaster from day one. Not many people can say they are living their childhood dream. And I am Earl Holland, and it's been a wonderful road and a lot of ups and downs, and, you know, nobody's perfect, and you get knocked down, you dust yourself off, you get back up, and that's the process of growing and learning. And, you know, if I didn't have television sports broadcasting, you know, I don't know what I would do. You know, maybe go into teaching, but other than that, I don't know what I would do, my friend. Do you feel that television, fairly or unfairly, gets a perception that is more of a superficial profession? Yeah, like we touched on earlier. I mean, people think it's so glamorous earlier under the lights. You're wearing makeup. You're in a suit and tie. And, you know, part of this business is the way you look, as petty and sickening as it sounds. Unfortunately, bosses out there of television stations want pretty people because they're on television they think pretty people attracts viewers that's unfortunately what some of this business is about but looks can only take you so far earl and you have to be willing to work hard you have to be willing to you know get down and dirty work your sources get those stories get that dirt on your fingernails they flush out 
the pretty boys and the pretty girls really quickly. You have to have work ethic. You have to have something inside you, something internal that drives you and motivates you and pushes you to be better every single day. Have you had times where you've interviewed a source where they tell you a bit of information and then I've heard it from like Dan Patrick, Keith Olbermann, they talked about, they've talked to a source and then they report that information and then that person will go and say, oh, this is a lie. And when they're sort of like on background saying, well, yeah, I had to say it wasn't true, but it is. Yeah, I've never really had those situations. I think maybe I've had a mix up of what's on the record and off the record before. And uh, I've had a couple of those situations, but you know, I've never had like a, you said this, you said that denial. Because remember TV, you're usually on tape and it's being recorded and there's video proof. Rarely do you get into kind of nuts and bolts, secret information off camera. I know you come from a print background, but TV is a little different in that sense. I think especially with print journalism, you'll have some people who will tell you this on record and then go off the record. And it's sort of like trying to make sure that the next thing they say, you've got to guarantee that it's either on the record or off the record, or you're going to have this whole issue of, well, this wasn't supposed to be for print. And I feel like another thing is that people get the whole off the record thing confused with on the background. That way you can at least say a source said this, as opposed to at least not putting your name to it. And then you get that whole anonymous sourcing. And that can be a pain sometimes where people don't trust you if you can't give them the name but that's an easy way to burn a source. If you give up information or give up that person, that's something that we see going on now with a lot of things where I want the name of this person in particular and not going into too much into politics or anything, but the whole New York Times thing where you see this unnamed source and people want that name, but you know, as a journalist, you'd be failing in your role of protecting your source if you gave up that information. Always got to protect your sources, and it's a balancing act in the, in the sense of when to kind of go to your source and when not to go to your source. But, you know, number one in journalism is protect your sources. You know, that's about trust and trust you. You trust them that they're giving you right information, and it's kind of a um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. What are some of maybe the best journalism books that you've read? Some of the best journalism that I've read. I like the Washington Post, you know, I've obviously got kind of connected with these folks, you know, Peter King, there's so many talented writers. The whole journalism world is just so different now with social media. And it's almost like sometimes I feel like I don't necessarily read stories as much as I just read like the bullet points on Twitter or just kind of those flashing news headlines. Everything's just so quick and immediate where, you know, people literally kind of tweet out a story in multiple tweets and back-to-back tweets is actually just putting a link because they want the information out there immediately. Do you feel that in the age of social media, it's been a benefit when it comes to getting out information? I know that, especially looking at the MLB trade deadline, all the different stories that, and things that you saw just come out of nowhere, a lot of them legit, as opposed to some of those strange people that you see who will create fake profiles and put out information misleadingly. But do you feel like social media has helped when it comes to uh, journalism? It's a blessing and a curse, my friend. It helps in the fact that I love Twitter. It's almost like a wire service. You know, it's just continual flood of information of what's going on, breaking news and whatnot. But it's also caused some sloppy journalism, really sloppy journalism, Earl. I mean, there's an urgency to be first. There's an urgency to break the story. And sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're way off base. 
And there's a lot of backtracking involved in the sense that, oh, shoot, I made a mistake. So I think it's kind of for some, you know, sloppiness. There's got to be some more accountability, my friend. Do you feel in the times where journalism is under attack for questions about its legitimacy, how do you try to... Uh... Fake news. Yeah. Fake news. <laughs> how do you just sort of try to curb that, especially now that everybody's ready to discredit what can be a valid source? I mean, you even hear some coaches. I think about the Bruce Arians situation where he was talking about that he was going to step down or retire at the end of the season. He used fake news, you know, on the record in the air saying it's fake news. And next thing you know, after the season, he retires. Yes. <laughs> oh, President Trump. Um, you know, his fake news um, tweets and his fake news interviews that he talks about. It's, um, you know, sometimes you take it personally because, you know, there's a lot of hardworking journalists out there that have their sources correct, have their sources intact. But like I said, there's a bad apple of the bunch that you know, maybe is wrong, you know, on Twitter and releasing information that they shouldn't or releasing information that's incorrect. And sometimes that spoils the whole bushel of apples because of that one bad apple. So sometimes it's smoke and mirrors and you just kind of have to ignore the noise, Earl. Ignore the noise and just do the best you can, be the best journalist you can and just do what you do best. And that's getting the facts and providing relevant information to the public and to the viewers. What do you feel is the greatest sin that a journalist can commit? Trying to be first and you are wrong. I think it says more about taking your time and making sure fact-checking that you are 100% right, especially on stories that have that emotional element or somebody's life is on the line in a sense of they're alive, they're dead. You better be damn right when you send out that tweet or write that story. And it happens to every reporter. As much as you try to get everything right, sometimes one small mistake can really taint something that is of quality and importance. And, and sometimes it's not of your own fault. Sometimes you're given bad information, which is really the toughest thing. Exactly. A bad lead and things like that. Yep. Yep. That's the frustrating part of if your sources give you bad information, that's a reflection on you, brother. Unfortunately, as they say, crap flows downhill. And, um, you're going to be the one in the crosshairs because your name is attached to that tweet. Your name is attached to that story. Especially in a social media world where you think you delete something and like we've seen with some of these pro athletes, what was your thought on some of those things, especially you were at the all-star game and the whole Josh Hader thing, the old tweets that came out. I think it's twofold. Number one, why would you put something out there so controversial? I don't care how old you are. Think before you hit the send button. Think, what ramifications will this tweet have? Number two, somebody has to have a lot of damn time on their hands to go back and find those tweets and kind of have a, a vendetta against this person to kind of recover those tweets. But yes, a lot of these tweets are done at a young age and they're immature, but that's not an excuse. You should know better. You and I know when we covered Delmarva, these high school athletes say some stupid stuff, Earl. They say some stupid stuff and um, they should know better, Earl. 
Yeah, and one of the tough things is, especially when you follow some of these athletes, you never really know what you're going to expect, and then you get your Twitter timeline filled with a lot of stuff that, if you were a scout or a college coach, would make you think otherwise of even recruiting these guys. Yeah, these student-athletes have to understand that college coaches are monitoring social media accounts. And, you know, it's been well documented. They're not going to recruit a kid that maybe has some character issues or some red flags that kind of come to the forefront with their social media accounts on Instagram or Twitter. So they just got to be smart. So changing the subject, because I know we've been talking a lot about journalism and your pursuits. What are some of your favorite shows to watch? I'm not a big TV watcher, my friend. I've watched Survivor since season one. That's kind of my vice. And then I just watched like 60 Minutes, E60. Um, I'm not into like sitcoms or TV shows. I just, I've never gotten into them. They'll watch Shark Tank, um, The Prophet those type of shows but i couldn't name you a television show right now i've never gotten into them and has that always been like that no i've never been like a seinfeld guy i've never or fred i've never watched like a tv show or 30 rock or whatever the famous tv shows have been i just never have watched those shows i've always rather watch a ball game or watch reality tv of survivor amazing race those type of shows it's always been like that earl I know you are a fan of the Buffalo Bills, but what are some of your other sports teams? I assume living in upstate New York, did you follow a lot of Toronto teams? Did you follow a lot of New York State teams? So I have quite the uh, variety. I like my Bills, so it's going to be a long season, brother. It's going to be a long season. And then I like, obviously, Syracuse University basketball. And then for baseball, I grew up loving the Red Sox. Um, I was a big Roger Clemens, Mo Vaughn guy. My excuse was my house is four hours to Boston in four hours to New York City. So that's my excuse for liking the Red Sox. And then I um, I don't like NBA. I'm not a big NBA guy. I kind of like the Knicks growing up with uh, the Patrick Ewing and the John Starks era. And then I got hooked with the Tampa Bay Lightning because in 2004 my big internship was in Tampa, Florida, and that just happens to be when they won the Stanley Cup. And I was able to be a part of that. So I kind of got hooked with the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning as my favorite hockey team. Do you feel it's tougher to watch stuff as a spectator without having that journalistic thought in mind when you're watching a game? Tell you what, I was uh, Eastern Conference Final when the Caps played the Tampa Bay Lightning. That was a torture on my heart. Um, I was uh, I was pulling for the Caps because I wanted to selfishly cover a Stanley Cup Final. And, uh, you know, you don't want to root for a team in a press box or you don't openly cheer. But inside, you know, I wanted it really bad for those guys because you're with the team and you know how hard they work. And you know how close they've been for so many years, Earl. They just could never get over that hump. They could never get that breakthrough. And I really wanted it for Ovechkin and Backstrom and Pulpy, the guys that have been with this franchise for so many years, to climb that mountaintop to hoist that cup over their head and growing up a Tampa Bay Lightning fan it was a hell of a seven game series and um, that was tough to watch you know I was a winner either way because either I'd have my childhood team go to the cup final or I'd be covering a cup final myself with the Caps so that was an interesting dynamic covering that series for two weeks in a previous episode, they had talked to a print journalist talking about blowing up game stories, and that's one of the hardest things to do as a print journalist. Does a TV reporter have that equivalent of blowing up really everything that they already did and just having to start all over again, or is that something that just sort of follow up later on? 
See, it's different. Yeah, like uh, print, you know, you have to have kind of your shell, your body kind of written out during the game. TV, we just go on camera and talk. So we just give the latest. So it's not like we have to kind of change as it goes. We just take what the game gives us and then deliver. You guys, unfortunately, are on deadline. In terms of print, having words on paper, we just have to verbalize, uh, which is much easier on deadline in a sense. Do you prefer having to do something live and spontaneously as opposed to pre-recording something? Do you feel like there is more pressure doing it over and over trying to pre-taping something? Live is where the adrenaline is, baby. It is where you get the energy, the juices, being on the front lines of being on the sidelines or being the guy on the ice after the game. That's where it's at. That's where the adrenaline is giving that post-game sound, giving your analysis of what happened at the game, that's what you live for as a television sports journalist. The element of being live and being spontaneous, that's what it's all about. And I can definitely agree with you, especially not maybe from a television standpoint, since I haven't done a lot of television, but radio. Last week I did a halftime show for radio, and just going through it, pre-reading it before everything was going on, it was just, you know, you stumble over it and things like that. And once you hit and that switch is on and that mic is on, you go, the adrenaline's there. It, it's the rush that you get. And even then, the fear of knowing you may mess up. You just keep going then. I feel like that was the biggest thing in working in radio. A lot of people would mess up and try to go back and double back. And the biggest thing is you just have to feel like you made that mistake. And then you just keep going because the biggest thing, sometimes they may not catch that error. But they'll catch it if you go back and try to fix it. Yep, that's right. Love the element of being live, brother. Love it. I, as we start to wrap things up, I just want to ask you, for anyone who's aspiring to be a journalist, what's the biggest bit of advice that you would give them? doesn't matter whether it's print, radio, television. Work hard. Be aggressive. Have thick skin. Be willing to get knocked down. Be willing to wait months until you get that job. You have to be aggressive. You have to always put your foot to the pedal and not let up because it is a tough business. It is a competitive business. You have to find something that separates you from the rest of the pack. Find that niche. Find something that stands out to that editor, to that news director. Find that it factor that make them say, yeah, this kid, this young man, this young woman has something different that stands out. Is there a particular maybe mechanism or trade or skill that maybe you took from other reporters that you grew up watching? Is there something in particular that you took from them that you made your own? Be conversational. When you're talking to the camera, act like you're talking to somebody at lunch or talking to somebody at a sporting event. Have that energy. Have those nonverbal communications where you talk with your hands. You move your eyebrows and, and, and show emotion and portray emotion. You know, those are important cues and techniques that draw the viewer in, that make them believe, this is an everyday kid. This is an everyday guy just talking to me like we're at lunch or having a beer at a bar. You want to have that energy and that emotion that comes out when you uh, deliver your sportscasts. Celebrity that people say you most look like and the actor you'd want to play you in a movie or TV show about yourself? The actor that I want someone to play me as is Matthew McConaughey. That guy has depth. That guy 
can be a variety of characters. He has a wide range of being serious to comedic. Matthew McConaughey will play the life of Scott Abraham in a major movie coming soon to a theater near you. No, I don't know. Yeah, McConaughey would be great. And um, a celebrity that people say I look like. Ooh. Um, who do I look like? Um, I've gotten a bunch. Kelly Ripa's husband, his name is Mark Consuelos. I believe he's a soap opera star. I don't know exactly what he does, but I've gotten that a number of times that I look like Mark Consuelos. And I can't say I've really seen a picture. I could probably pull it up on Google real quick, but yeah, I've gotten that a couple of times. Mark Consuelos, Earl Holland. Yeah, I've seen him. He was on this show called Pitch on Fox where he played the San Diego Padres general manager. Yeah, I can see that. It's always a good question to ask people because you never know what they're going to say, especially when it comes to playing them in a movie. Some people say the actor that looks like them the most. Some people want somebody whose personality no. matches them. I want some depth. I want some depth. Scott, I do appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule, especially being a father and your busy career. And I do appreciate it. Before I let you go, I want to let people know the best way people can get up with you. How can they reach you and reach out to you? I love my Twitter. They can follow me on Twitter at ScottABC7. At ScottABC7 is my Twitter handle. I'm always active on Twitter. I love new followers. I love engaging with the people that follow me. So hit me up on Twitter. Um, that's the best way to find me. Well, Scott, I do appreciate it. And I hope to have you back again. I love talking sports with you. I feel like people will get to know a lot more about you. And I feel like, you know, there's always something new that everybody can learn about a person. Amen. Amen. And thank you for having me on. It's great catching up with you, my brother. And uh, I'm proud of you of how hard you're working and you're uh, you're on the path to success as well. And for close fraternity, all of us that spent time in Salisbury and worked those high schools and Salisbury University. So it's always great to keep in touch with my brothers in the Salisbury ranks. I want to thank Scott Abraham for his time in participating in this interview, and I look forward to having him back again. Next time, my guest will be my brother, Edward Holland Sr. In this free-for-all episode, Eddie and I will discuss a number of topics, including his time as a scholastic athlete and his view on professional sports. To listen to past interviews, go to thesportsrefuge.com or you can find the show on Google Play, Apple iTunes, or Stitcher Radio. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. Tune in next time for more interviews on sports, pop culture, and everything in between. For more information on the show, go to the Sports Refuge website at www.thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog.